Welcome in, everybody, to yet another edition of Radio Voice Reunion. That's Radio Voice Reunion doing business as Sad Times. That's a DBA. I paid for that. This is Sad Times, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Kevin. I am your host. Uh, For those of you who have never listened to Sad Times before, welcome. Just to give you a little primer, Sad Times is a show in which each week we have a guest who comes on and talks about times that they were sad, upset, angry, times they've struggled, and how they felt and what they did during those times. The goal here is not to diagnose this problem, nor is it to solve uh, any of these problems. It is just to let somebody tell their story so that anybody who is listening is able to listen and feel a little less alone as well. Um, and if you would like to be a guest on the show, you can email us at sadtimeskc at gmail.com. That's K as in ketchup, C as in catsup. So sadtimeskc at gmail.com. And actually, today's guest, who we'll get to in a moment, emailed us there not too long ago, and now she's a guest. Um, <clears throat> before we get to our wonderful guest, We do have two sponsors. Uh, One of them was found by Brent, again, so you guys know what that means. And then one of them is is one that uh, I was able to sign up. We always want you to support our sponsors, so let's get right to them. Our first sponsor is Tipping for Service Workers. Did you know socialism is alive and well all across this great land? That's right. The powers that be who decry socialism as the opposite of freedom have cleverly dictated that we, and not them, will practice socialism to support those in the service industry to barely make a living. Thanks, ruling classes. We're happy to help these kind and hardworking people out. Please make sure to tip your servers at least 20% and always, always, always be kind to them. That's one, maybe one of the nicer ones you've ever found, Brent. Thank you. Uh, and our other one is the we Sad Times is brought to you by the ironic use of classics in modern day advertising. For example, the other day I looked up and saw an Audi commercial that used the meditations of Marcus Aurelius in an ironic way. And I certainly began certain that I was going to jump off of a cliff. But thank goodness I had my copy of Seneca's Letters from a Young Stoic to keep me from jumping. How lovely. Ah, stoicism, you know? It's good stuff. It's, it's, not, just, uh, it's not just for the 365-a-day calendar anymore. Wow. All right. Okay. Well, as you know, we love you to support our sponsors, and you can support them. Just put in the code... F-A-K-E, that's F-A-K-E when you check out. All right, let's get to our guest today. This is an old friend of both Brent and I, and her name is Melissa. Hey, Melissa, how's it going? Hey, it's good. I'm so glad to be here, and I definitely will support all of your sponsors. I thank you. Thank you very much. We That's why we do this, really, is the sponsors, because they give us money. So uh, now, Melissa... You and I went to that very same prestigious university in Southern Illinois, which we will not name. But tell us a little bit more about yourself. Where are you from? I grew up in the northern suburbs of Chicago and uh, lived there in pretty much my whole life. I went to the very fancy and prestigious high school that I guess I shouldn't name. Uh, I don't know. Are you, we can, you can name that, just not the <laughs> prestigious university in Southern Illinois. No problem. Right, I, I went to uh, Stevenson High School where they have lots of theaters and great arts support and advocacy. Um, so I was very, very, very blessed that way. That, to God, that sounds like a, a fucking hell yeah. on earth. <laughs> I mean, oh, sorry. No, that's wonderful. I, and so were you pretty active in theater in, in high school then, I assume? I was insanely active. If I could have lived there, I would have. What, what drew you to theater? Really, I mean, because I was active in theater as well in high school, but mine, my theater was does not sound like it was nearly as is uh, my theater program rather does not sound as nearly uh, as all encompassing as yours did. You know, I think I grew up with a theater bug. Um, I was je- definitely a like play dress up kind of girl growing up, um, and I became a very bossy 
kid. Oh. I was the oldest kid in my family in that generation and on the block. And I just, I sort of made everyone into my minions. And my, my goal was not domination, but rather musical theater. I don't know why, but Did, that's just how I am. <laughs> were there like musical numbers going on, on your, on your block then? Yes. Wow. Variety shows. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of uh, Paula Abdul and MC Hammer back in the day. Wow. All right. Yeah, I could see that. And uh, then you came to the prestigious university and you studied theater as as Brent and I did. And uh, you graduated a year before I did. And um, then you went out into that great, big, scary fucking world. So I think we're going to pick up there. <clears throat> now, when you got done at the university, did you come back up to to the city of Chicago? Yes, I, I definitely um, figured that would be my best bet for building a theater career. So I, I came right back, got myself set up with a little apartment and, and then I was really hustling a ton. Um, I worked show after show after show in those years, right after graduation. And to be clear, you worked and did those shows, but you, I assume had a day job as well. Oh yes. Yes. I, um, I was working in the northern suburbs and I would do the grind. Um, you know, I'd get up and start my day job at seven or eight in the morning and then finish that at four or five and then cruise to my theater gig, whatever that was, and uh, finish at 10 and then, you know, go to bed and do it again um, for years. For years. And would you say that's kind of like having two jobs? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I really put myself all in on everything. Yeah. And in doing in doing that theater at night, I'm sure that you were not really getting paid. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you were getting paid anything, it was it was a, probably a, a very small amount. It was a token of appreciation and esteem. Oh, esteem. But nothing more. Nobody's esteem. ever given me esteem before. Brent always <laughs> asked me esteem. to take esteem, but I, I'm not into that. Um, well, okay. But. You kept doing this show after show, as you said, to use your term. Did you find yourself that you were kind of advancing in the theater community just by getting yourself out there over and over again? You know, I struggled with that. I definitely built some great relationships and I started to um, sort of build from one show into the next, as you kind of do. But I never really hit the trajectory that I wanted. Um, and what was that? Yeah, well, I mean, my goal was never to, like, be famous. Um, it was really more to do the work. Um, I really wanted to just live my life in the theater. And, and actually, my true objective was to teach. Um, I really wanted to build a solid enough foundation in my theater career that I could be credible, um, you know, in some sort of higher education institution as a teacher. Um, so that was my goal. And I, I wasn't getting I wasn't getting far enough for my own uh, ambition, really. Um, so that's why I applied to grad school. So you applied to grad school for what? Uh, I applied to go to grad school for theater directing mm -hmm. because doubling down. Um, <laughs> and so I got in and I went uh, to the University of Essex in London. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you left the United States? I did, yeah. Did you lose a bet? And it was awesome. It was awesome? Huh? Now, it was so awesome. <clears throat> how long, now, how long was that program? It was a two-year program. And I think in total, I was in London for two and a half or three years. Okay, and your goal, again, to come out of that was to direct shows and it still was not to be famous correct it was not to be famous it was to direct shows and hopefully with my masters i could um teach in college and that that was the ultimate goal okay great and because you wanted to further and give that experience to people the same experience you had at at that wonderful sounding high school you had that you did in, in college and then um, in university, as they say, uh, over there. And you also, I think you found something else over there. I did. I, <laughs> I have told people that I got my MFA and my 
MRS because I found myself a nice man Ooh. and I brought him home. <laughs> I brought him home as my souvenir. Oh, good. Um, yeah. So, I, well, I, I hope I'm you bought him at duty free because that's a lot of taxes. So many taxes. So many taxes. And we could do a whole separate episode on the immigration process because that was a joy. Oh, I bet it was. I bet it was. <laughs> but you go over there with a very artistic, we'll call it an artistic um, <clears throat> goal. And yet you come back with something. And what, obviously, to find love is a wonderful thing. But to come back with somebody who now you're like, oh, well, maybe my life, I can make a, a quote unquote home out of it. Like, did that, was that something that you even expected when you went over there? And then kind of what was your reaction when you found that stability? I was definitely not looking for or expecting to find my husband in England or anywhere. I was really always a very driven career minded person. And I always sort of believed that I would be kind of charting my own course and I had very high expectations and I never was, and this is no judgment on anybody, but I was just never like, I'm going to grow up and be a mom. I never had that picture. Um, and you know, I was never the kind of girl I'm, that was like, I'm going to be wifey. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when I met Jason, like my whole paradigm shifted and suddenly a whole different path like presented itself and it was wonderful. So I kind of yes anded my way through that. Yes and there we go. Brent. Yes and. All right. Stop. Okay, stop. You're gonna hurt yourself. Stop nodding. All right. All right. So you come back and then you had been working a day job, doing shows at night. I, I imagine it was storefront theater. Is that is that a safe assumption? For yes. those of you who don't know, that's quite a literal term. These are storefront theaters. They're very small. Oh, yeah. Very, very, very small. The fringiest fringe. Mm -hmm. But not like cool fringe like the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, right? My fringe was cool. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> not other than your – there's Melissa and then there's Edinburgh and then that's it. That, that's a cool fringe. That's, yeah. That's gotcha. Right. So you got back. You've got Jason. You now, did you guys get married right away, or was that more of a, a a drawn out process? No, we got married pretty fast because as I I got kicked out of the UK when my student visa expired, and he, he we just knew we wanted to be together, so we got engaged before I left the UK, and then we spent nine months apart, um, waiting for the immigration visa to come through and then he got over here with a month to spare before our, our wedding so wow we went right into it yeah wow nine months apart though it, even in with technology and stuff that is that had to have been extremely difficult it was definitely a challenge um it was definitely a great way to find out quickly if your relationship is going to last mm -hmm. um and you know Fortunately, it did. So yeah. that's, that's really all I could say about that. You know, I think that uh, I would like for Brent and I to try nine months apart to see if our relationship's going to last. I think that would be good, you know? So you I got really back like and you have the nine months, well, I guess 10 months from when you left to when you got married, but nine months yeah. before your husband-to-be came over. What did you do right when you, when you got back? What did you start doing? So... Um, I had a plan and an idea based on my experience in Chicago that I guess I always felt that nobody was going to give me a leg up because the, as you know, the, the storefront theater and the fringe theater scene in Chicago is sort of its own um, environment. And then there's the regional theaters and the larger theaters like Steppenwolf and Goodman and, you know, all that looking glass. Um, and I knew, knew that nobody at any of those big theaters was going to like give me an opportunity. So my belief has always been, I got to make my own work and I got to um, not rely on anybody else to um, pave a way for me. So when I came back, um, I, my plan was to start my own theater company. And so I did that very soon after coming back to the States and I launched focal point theater company um, back in, I think it was 2010. 
Wow, that's awesome. And it, listen, for those of you who, to start, uh, I love the term make your own work. It is very, it is a very difficult thing because we're going to talk a little bit later uh, about something that you term head trash, which I think is one of the best terms I've heard ever. Uh, but that shit gets in the way when you're trying to make your own work. No matter how much you may believe in what you're doing or not doing, all that shit swirls around. So the fact that you were able to get back and just hit it hard right away and start this company is is a huge, that's just amazing. And how, how did how did the company go? Like, did you guys get off to a good start? How, how did it go? We did fabulous. In our first couple of years, we did three or four shows, if I recall correctly. We stayed entirely in the black financially. Um, and we sort of built up our audience and we... Um, we got some really good critical feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, we got a Chicago reader recommended, you know, we, oh, were, yeah. we were sort of on the up and up. Um, and then we did our first big main stage show and that was a big success. It was awesome. That's amazing. And where were you guys doing your shows? Um, we were largely right at the Southern part of Evanston. Up mm. where they had, um, I'm forgetting what it was called, right at on Chicago Avenue at the the train house, um, the Piccolo Purple Line? Theater. Oh yeah, yeah, Piccolo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. In that space, we did a lot of work there, and some other cool labs and stuff around Ravenswood and you know Northside stuff. Yeah. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Chicago, Evanston is just north of Chicago. It's like immediately north Chicago ends Evanston begins that's where Northwestern University is and then uh, Ravenswood and Northside Ravenswood is one of the I believe 56 neighborhoods in Chicago I could be wrong on that number but um, it is a city of neighborhoods so that's cool that you were kind of branching out and going all over the place so you guys are going you got a couple years you got about four shows you got some great feedback what happens next I got pregnant oh and <laughs> I got pregnant during our big main stage show. Okay. And um, came to the realization at that point that, um, you know, I, I was no longer going to be able to take the lead on producing um, and being the sort of artistic director and largely um, the driver of what we were creating. Um, although I had a phenomenal team of people working at, with me at focal point, um, we sort of reached the things ground to a halt because the rest of the team didn't want to take the control, didn't want to really take the reins and didn't want to be responsible for running the company in my absence. Um, and I had no clear idea of how long I would need to be away or, you know, I, w I was, truly a blank slate on parenting and all of that. So um, really things ran dry. And uh, I should mention also at the same time that I was working with my company, I was also working with another theater company mm -hmm. as their resident director, um, literary manager. And that was 20% theater company, um, which is a, a women's theater company in Chicago. Um, I had done a bunch of great shows with them, lots of cool work and as I became a parent, that group sort of fell apart too. I wasn't really able to find a place that could support my needs as a parent in the creative world um, in either place. Do you, do you think that's because even though, you know, just art, but theater specifically demands so much of us, um, even though it does not really give much back at least in the form of materials right money or, or what have you but because it demands so much that if you do something what normal society does like have a kid people are like well you're not going to have time to do this like was anybody rude to you about it or it was just like that's the reality you you can't have a kid and do theater nobody was rude to me for sure but i think they were limited in their thinking based on the experiences that they had of working in fringe theater and the, you know, the types of people that would collaborate in their usual spaces. So, you know, as soon as I sort of positioned myself as outside of that comfort zone, mm -hmm. it, it was like, I got phased out 
you know, like I got kind of put on the sidelines. We'll, we'll let you in whenever you're ready, whenever you're ready. But, but it, it was never conducive to me coming back. Wow. So that there's a lot of stuff going on here, right? You're yeah. pregnant with your first child. Yeah. You, uh, the work that you just have been busting your ass doing for years, you went to three, two years of grad school about it. And yeah. now you're kind of, because you're having a kid, whether it is meant to or not, people are saying, oh, oh, you go take care of that and you come back when you're ready. And you're thinking to yourself, what, in 18 years, you know, when my child yeah. is graduated, right? And un yep. unfortunately, this, I believe, and, you know, let me know if you disagree with this. This is just, we're just talking about theater. Think about all of the professions that women try to do while being mothers and the way that the probably was it the soft bigotry of, of people not meaning to be mean, but they're like, well, you can't be a mother and work here. That's just not going to work. Right. Yes. Yes. That um, bias factors in heavily in any industry. Um, you know, just that suddenly when a woman becomes a parent, even if, you know, and looking very, very differently at how it is when a man becomes a parent, suddenly the woman is now splitting her time in responsibilities. And even with the best of intentions, many companies are like, well, we'll give you less of a load here so that you can meet your other responsibilities. And that leads to women missing out on upward advancement, financial advancement, um, you know, all the, the trajectory boosters that men in the meantime are, are benefiting from. Yeah. So, like I said, <laughs> a lot going on there. Um, so you, you have your first son. Now, do you, after you've, um, you know, recovered and, and everything, do you get back into the theater scene or kind of what, what happens then? I struggled with some major postpartum depression. Um, and so, to be honest, that part of my timeline is a little bit hazy because I had such a um, steep learning curve mm. on parenting and, um, you know, my my mental health was not great for many reasons. Um, you know, I was combating um, my own personal, internal, physical struggles, uh, you know, all the changes that go on when you um, have a kid. And also at the same time, losing my creative outlet, losing the company that I established and, um, you know, also struggling very much financially just at where I was at with my day job. So a lot of swirling, um, sadness frankly it was it was a grief cycle at that point because i felt like i failed um the theater trajectory mm -hmm. i felt like um i really had no place i was completely lost was it kind of like the art that you had given so much to for so long it was it was almost as if it was like a spurned partner who or a partner who spurned you and was just like left you like on the side of the road type of deal yeah, absolutely. I, I felt like it was a breakup, like it was a the worst betrayal that you could feel. You gave and gave and gave and gave so much to this relationship. You nurtured it. And um, ultimately, like you, I felt like I, I was cast out and just sort of a piece of trash. Mm, man. So did you in feeling that way in something so profound, a grief like that, did you feel like you could open up to people? Say somebody comes over to see the new baby. Did you feel you that you could say, I have no creative outlet. Who am I? What am I doing? Or did that seem odd to you? Or did you feel like you had to keep that all inside? That's a great question. I, I felt. Thank you. <laughs> I really felt like um, I felt like such a loser. And I really it was a big hit to my pride to try to admit that to people at the time. And I think I put on a brave face um, and, you know, a coping face as much as I could to my closest friends and family. But I really started to isolate myself um, and withdraw from all those great theater relationships and, um, you know, the, the wider network 
of my life, I just, I just pulled back and sort of went into a cocoon to try to figure out what the heck I needed to do next. Yeah. And that, that's a good point. I mean, not only are you walking away from what you've dedicated so much of your life to, you're walking away in some respects to a lot of those, excuse me, from a lot of those relationships you've built while dedicating your life to that art. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of, I, I did feel betrayed by, by the people that couldn't figure out how to make space for me. I mean, what I've learned now is that it was really my responsibility to advocate for myself in those moments, mm -hmm. but I didn't have the vocabulary and I didn't have that sort of empowered um, frame of reference to be able to, to demand some space at the table. I just took it all so personally and it, it sort of ate away at me in a, a grief spiral. So you, you were not even understanding that, Hey, I had a part, not, I'm not putting blame or anything, but you're saying I had a part to play in this too. It, you were, you couldn't even see that at the time. It was like, how could I be again? It, it does sound like the end of a relationship. Like how could I be left like a piece of trash here when you didn't understand that, you have to, if I'm hearing you correctly, you have to advocate for yourself and you have to say, I would, I say that I can come and do this work. You know, I have made arrangements for childcare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I think a lot of that perspective that I was carrying with me was about feeling the sort of scarcity that we as theater people and as artists um, are taught, you know, like if you're not perfect and if you're not ready to, um, to do the work, to get in it, to, to, um, pay your dues mm. and, you know, like, <laughs> what was it? Brush the, like sweep the floors. That, that was the mm -hmm. metaphor I heard a lot. Like you've got to get in there and sweep the floors mm -hmm. to prove that you're, you know, dedicated. And, and I just didn't have any other frame of reference, but that at the time that like it, if you don't show up every second to show how dedicated you are, you can't play with us. So the, this idea of paying dues, uh, you know, that, that, that goes across all sorts of things. Now, were people saying to you, Melissa, you have to pay your dues before you can move forward? Or was it just kind of understood? I think I heard it. You heard it. I think I, I, think I actually heard people say that, like, it's going to be hard expect to wait tables, expect mm, to, mm -hmm. you know, like handle a lot of rejection. Mm -hmm. The messages that, that I got, maybe you've got some of these too at that institution um, <laughs> was just like, brace yourself for how hard and difficult this is going to be. And, and only the strongest survive sort of <laughs> philosophy. Right, which, yes, I heard that, you know, and that is said, with love from these people, of course, because they're trying to say, hey, this isn't going to be easy because it's not. But I remember when I was in high school, my mom spoke with somebody, I don't remember who it was, who had done theater or something, and had mentioned that I had interest in doing theater. And he um, he said I would need to be okay with living a nomadic life. So I went and got the dictionary and I looked up nomadic and I said, oh, that's all right. Yeah, I like going from place to place. That'll be fine. But then I did it and it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult when you look at the same goddamn hotel walls every fucking night, you know. Um, so the word that was told to me a lot was sacrifice. Sacrifice. Hmm. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to sacrifice certain things if you want to be successful in this career. You're gonna have to sacrifice your personal life. You're going to have to sacrifice the, you know, ability to go to a wedding on a Friday night because you're going to be in a show. You know, you're going to have to um, give up your expectations of financial gain or advancement in that way. So like that, that language and vocabulary was put on me definitely in high school and, and by my mom and, you know, other people that were as you said, genuinely trying to look out for my best interest and um, sort of throw the gauntlet, say like, this is going to be hard, but if you want it, we're supporting you, you know, like that's, which that's is a the, wonderful the vibe thing. that I got a lot. A Unfortunately, thing. a lot of people who go into arts, they're, they're, I've heard terrible stories about people whose parents are like, 
they won't support what they're doing. They just continuously are telling them this is what a waste of your time. You, you should be a banker because uh, I did see earlier today there is a, a dearth of bankers in the world. So we need we need more of those, I guess, apparently, um, according to some people's parents. So <laughs> you, you now I believe I don't think we cover this. You had a second child, right? I did. Yes. I have two boys now. Two boys. And yes. uh, when I talked to you earlier uh, ahead of this, I asked what they were doing. And I believe you told what were they doing? They were At downstairs the writing a screenplay. They were downstairs. Uh, they were writing scripts. <laughs> they were composing their next big project. Well, um, that's, they are very creative. Kids. That's so. I love to hear that. But also, did you get the dictionary out and say this is what nomadic means? We have not had that tough <laughs> love conversation. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe <laughs> don't. Uh, I. So, were you asking yourself? As you lose your creative outlet and you have very immediate concerns of raising your family with your husband, were you asking yourself, am I really even an artist? Yeah, I was. And I, I think partly as I lost that um, channel for expressing myself, I also I lost my perspective. I, I didn't have anything to say. You know, I became so isolated and I became so focused on parenting and, you know, um, earning a living. And I was like, do I even have anything to contribute to the landscape of creative expression? I don't, I don't have anything to say anymore. Um, was I even an artist to begin with? Like if I, if I'm giving up, if I'm, if I'm losing this now, like, was I ever really any good at this? Um, or was I ever really on the right path? Um, and then you go back to that, that refrain that, that, uh, this, this is a waste of time. This, um, you know, this career path is such a waste of time as we've heard from others. And I, I just felt like, what, what even am I at this point? Yeah, and it's it's uh it's almost like it's if it's not a waste of time, it's a stopover until you figure out what you're really going to do with your life, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, like that was a phase that I went through. Yeah, and you know there are people who seem to be born geniuses for art, right? I think anybody who's listening can think of those people. They just do it, and they do it well, and the world works out and the, the luck works out and, you know, they meet the right people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The vast majority of people are not that. And it's, it's almost as if, and I'm just kind of pontificating here. It's almost as if, you know, people, when you tell somebody, Oh, I'm going to be an artist. They think, Oh, you're going to be the next Bob Dylan, or you're going to be the next Amy Winehouse or whomever. Uh, when no, you're, I'm just going to be Kevin and try my best. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Like not everybody has that, um, that singular gift, but there are plenty of like working professionals who just do art. <laughs> they right. just make art. Even in a country where it is not incentivized. Yes. Um, he said very quietly and hope nobody <laughs> yelled at him uh where it is not incentivized yet every human being who is alive looks to art in in hard times so it's it's a it's a weird uh it's a weird thing right we all want and love art but we do not use the power of of group um uh, the the power to incentivize art for others it, it and the truth is go ahead yeah sorry. i mean the truth is that art is legitimate work Say that again, please. And art is legitimate work. And it is an economy. Mm. It is a thriving economy that continued through the pandemic. You know, it, it carried us all. Art and and uh, music and, and alcohol. TV. Oh, my God. <laughs> alcohol. <laughs> Making alcohol is an art into itself. <laughs> That's right. You, But yes. It is legitimate work, 
And I had to repeat that because of course it is. And, you know, I, I give Brent a, a, a load of shit on the show, but one of the reasons uh, I look up to Brent is Brent has said, I'm going to do this on my own terms. I'm going to create a podcast with a friend. That podcast is doing great. And now I'm sitting in his studio that he has started on his own terms to produce art for other people. And it is an inspiring thing that every time that I come here to do this goofy little show, uh, I'm reminded that, yes, that is art in action as legitimate work. So it's, it's really, really fucking inspiring when you see it in other people. Yes. So another thing that we've talked about a little bit as far as artwork and, and art, and I think we've kind of danced around it, but would you say that a lot of people who do, say, major in theater or major in dance or, or, or whatever it may be, they don't have uh, – they don't even know where to begin with financial planning, financial anything. Uh, the, the, the financial language, they, they don't even know the words to use in order to – you know, take the next step there. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think that that is really the case. And um, I think there's a sense, a couple of things. One, that if you're um, a creative person, especially from a young age, there's a sense that any talk about finance or even just math, it's not for you. It's for, for other people. You know, there's that whole idea of the left-brained and the right-brained. And the minute that a lot of school systems or teachers peg somebody as a right-brained person, there was a tendency to think, to, to sort of mold them in that direction. And I think the message to the creative student is that they don't need to concern themselves with matters of business or matters of like personal finance and that even the idea of having money is not for them. It's reserved for other people because artists starve, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's, there's a whole mythos of the starving artist. And I think it exists so much that many artists buy into it themselves. And then there's the idea on top of it that if you concern yourself with finance, maybe you're a sellout Mm. and maybe you're not really a good creative person. You're just in it for commercial benefit. You know, like there's a, there's an internal tug of war that resists the idea in addition to not having access from the beginning to um, that information, that vocabulary, you know, altogether. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because going back to theater again that we keep speaking about by definition really in theater you're kind of just always pitted against your competition and if there's one role there's only one person to play it or if there's one show there's only one director to direct it and then it's almost like um how did you describe it uh, it was like Art is a pie. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I think that that speaks to like the scarcity idea and that um, many people believe that uh, there's only so much work to go around. And if I, if I get a job, you know, that prevents somebody else from getting work as well. And the truth is there's plenty of work to go around, but the story that we're told as creative people is that if you won't settle for the terms of this job as meager as they are, you know, in terms of how much we're paying and what time you must commit and what you're willing to do for the job, you know, if you're not willing to meet those terms, then there's 20 more people standing, you know, in a line ready to take your job um, from you. So we're, we're continually pitted against each other and kept in the dark about how much the pay rate is and what those terms were and who agreed to them and who didn't. And that's a means for systemic oppression in our little artistic community and world. And um, many of us can't even reach the trajectory like me that we hope to achieve because of those systemic 
um, you know, means that, that are in place to sort of keep us out and keep us um, thinking small. Yeah. And you said a lot there that I think is really important. And one of them is the idea of who accepts the pay rate and who doesn't. Can you explain a little, explain a little bit more about kind of the secrecy that is around payment while, while at least thinking in non-equity theater, I guess I'll say. Yeah. Um, because of, you know, in the non-equity world, because we don't have the protections of unions and sort of the standards and practices, the people who have achieved success and who are in seats of power and control have very often reached those heights because of great personal sacrifice that they've made and the um, <laughs> those shitty jobs that they were willing to do so that 20 people behind them didn't get that job. And so now they're sitting in seats of power and they're perpetuating those belief systems. And very often up until um, so much of the change that happened, you know, from the pandemic forward, those were white men sitting in the seats of, of power and control. And they are those people in particular very committed to maintaining the systems that have them in power and control um, and very dedicated to ensuring that those systems um, continue. So, you know, they don't want, they don't want people to know uh, um, to have the information and they weren't necessarily ready to make space for other people to have more transparent conversations and um, to advocate for themselves. Does that sort of answer the question on where you were, were thinking? Oh, for sure. I think that's extremely well said. And I think we have gotten into, again, what you call head trash, uh, which, again, is a wonderful phrase. And it makes me think of, surprise, surprise, uh, a Bob Dylan lyric. Uh, where he says, you've been fooled into thinking that the finishing end is at hand, yet there's no one to beat you, no one to defeat you, except the thoughts of yourself feeling bad. Perfect. Yeah, he's pretty fucking great, man. I'm a big fan. He, he's really good. And also, he's really, really rich. Oh, He's rich, all right. I mean, I went. I paid fifty dollars to go to a tasting of his whiskey. Well, to be fair, my friend paid and then wouldn't let me pay him, and I just covered the bill afterwards. But still, yeah. But that man has taught me more about life than um, I don't know any anyone else that I've met. So, so head trash, right? So we get in our heads. You talk about the the idea of the starving artist and or hey, I'm gonna have some kids. Oh my god, I can't be a mother and an artist and I, there are all these societal norms i guess again uh that says oh well we can't do this we can't do that it must be this way or that way when really in the world it's all pretty goddamn gray anyway um and so how how do you feel that you overcame your personal head trash um from when you were really struggling uh, after you had your kids and trying to find a place for yourself as an artist and then after? When I was um, isolated, I kept thinking about caterpillars and butterflies and that whole um, transformational uh, perspective. And I, I, I think I knew at some point that I would be okay. And I, I was guided by a hope a hopeful spirit that, you know, maybe my life wouldn't always stay that way. And I have always said the theater will be there. Like the theater's not going anywhere. So I, I sort of had this idea that, that I could step away, but of course you never, you're never sure that you'll be able to get back in the door. Um, and so what I started to think about is like, what did I want? Who, who did I want to be next? Um, if I can't be a theater director, that is, you know, um, that's my career. That's my, the way that I earn my living. If I can't be that, and I can't be a theater professor necessarily um, living in the area that I'm in with the family that I have, um, you know, I, 
under those circumstances, like what else, how else can I provide some value or, or put myself out there so that I have a purpose? And what kept coming back to me was the idea of service. And I haven't really shared this yet, but we've talked a little bit about day job. All along this time that I was hustling in the theater, I had a day job. I've been in the same job for 14 years and I have been um, working in the financial services industry of all places um, and using my theater and communication skills to help other uh, financial advisors learn how to communicate and how to build um, more trustworthy experiences with their clients and, and prospects. So all this time, I've been nested in this industry as like, like a, a spy. I kind of felt like I'm like hiding from the inside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a theater person hiding in the financial services. Nobody knows I'm here. So I'm going well, to listen to everything you just, that they have to you say. You just ruined everything, Melissa. I did? Now, oh, I blew it. all two Loose people who listen to this show, which is uh, my mother and Brent, he just listens to it to go to sleep, really. Um, are gonna know? Sorry. No, it's okay. So I love that idea, though. I'm a spy, but you were saying a few minutes ago, like these things can coexist. It doesn't have yeah. to be one or the other, right? So it's like you're taking. Um, is it left brain that's creative or right brain? Right brain. So you're taking the right brain approach to the left brain world. Yeah, and a lot of this came from struggles that I had as a mother um, trying to put food on the table because when I started this job that I, I've been in for so long, I was like um, a coordinator entry-level employee. And um, at the time that I had my second child, my husband started working, uh, started being a stay-at-home parent. So we were a single income family. And at that point, my, my income wasn't very strong at all. And we were in a major deficit. So all this time, I was in this financial services industry learning about um, personal finance and trying my best to apply what I'm learning um, from these people <laughs> to get myself out of a major financial crisis personally. Um, and I came to the conclusion that I, I could take some of this information that I'm receiving and pass it along to other creative people who might benefit from it. And that's how I, I came to the conclusion that I should launch what is now my company, Smartistry. All right. So, first of all, that's a great fucking name. Thank you. Okay, so you talk about service. You talk about helping. And when I when you first told me about this, I thought, Jesus Christ, what a good idea. And boy, talk about service for people who are dealing with this head trash, people who are barely making ends meet but didn't think that they had a, a say in, in, in the financial side of things. So tell us more about Smartistry and, and kind of your, your, your goals with it. Smartistry is an educational organization um, designed to help creative people get empowered through personal finance by learning the vocabulary and the tools and tricks um, to build a more sustainable life so that they can um, continue to be creative people and put their creative work into the world. So everything that we teach is about um, you know, planning and, and being proactive. And um, it's very much about staying in your creative seat and having more control and empowered decision making. That yeah. was the first part of the question. What was the second part? <laughs> I don't remember because I really like that answer. Yeah, the well, what I what that made me think of is going back to what you said at the very beginning of the episode, which is you're working seven to four, you know, eight to five, and then going and doing theater. And the brain can only expend so much energy. 
And if you want to be successful and you're an ambitious person, not just as a creative person, but somebody who wants to be ambitious and do good work, no matter the work, you're going to run out of brain power and something's going to have to give. And more often than not, people say, well, you know, uh, I can let that go over there. I, I was just rereading um, Harrison Scott Key's first two memoirs, and I just read his third one, which is fucking amazing. And he talks about in his second book, it. it's so good, his second book called Congratulations, Who Are You Again? Um, that the thing about if you have a dream, if you have to let the dream stay where it is and not feed it, it doesn't hurt anyone other than you. The world keeps spinning, et cetera. I probably just, <clears throat> excuse me, bastardize that. But it sounds like one of the things that Smartistry could really do is to help people understand, like, here's a way to balance your life financially, creatively, all of these things so that you can use the better part of who you are towards what you really love and care about. A hundred percent. And I think at the same time, giving people some of the tools and resources that I didn't have or that I missed out on in terms of um, advocating for myself, understanding um, about asking better questions and getting transparent answers from, from the powers that be, you know, all of these ways that we can um, break through to build a more um, inclusive space uh, for, for every creative output, every creative medium. Yes, right. And how you when did you start when did you start building this company? I started doing some research and, and doing some sort of field testing, straw polling back in, in 2018. Um and I got some great feedback. Most everybody that I talked to about Smartistry is like, "Oh my god, I wish I had this." Mm. When I was, you know, in school or when I was starting out. So that's great feedback. Um, and then I started um, putting myself out there more and starting to um, get involved and do more networking sort of under the guise of running Smartistry. And it was so amazing and so re-energizing to me to be able to be seen, to be able to be heard and, and have something to say again. Um and so I launched the company officially in January of 2020, um, which is an interesting <laughs> time to start a company. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, did um, it have a face mask division? Because if it did, you're doing great. <laughs> the whole thing was Zoom. <laughs> Everything I do is Zoom. <laughs> yes. Okay, so you started in 2020 after doing a year and a half, two years of research. And yeah. I want I want to expand on something you just said there, how it felt good to be seen to to be out there. It t tell us more of what you mean by that, like being able to say I came up with or not I came up with this that like this is my thing and I believe in this and I tell me more about what you mean by how how that how good it feels to be seen in that way. I was doing a talk for a high school recently and I was. Um, drawn to the idea of like what makes an artist an artist because you know that's something I've been struggling with like am I still an artist and what I've reached is the idea of inspiration and how if you're a creative person the minute that you feel inspired by something something external your internal system says I got to react to that. I got to, I have something to express about that and I need to put it out there. I need to reciprocate whether that's, I'm going to write a song or I'm going to write a poem or I'm going to do a monologue or paint a picture that need to react outwardly is what makes a creative person, a creative person. And if you are so caught up in your day-to-day -day logistics and your need to support yourself and your struggles in that manner that you can't even hear what's inspiring you, you don't have any more brain cells left to process, 
all the beauty that there is in the world, you, you can't continue to do that work to, to expel that energy to reciprocate and to have a dialogue. So I think that's really what drives me is finding a way to cut through that so that those people that feel that creative burning, that thing that lights you up can continue and that that light isn't snuffed out because of some bullshit financial excuse, you know, I have to find a way to fix that. That was uh, really inspiring. That was really inspiring. And, uh, you know, I try to go away from the microphone because I'm a mouth breather and people don't want to hear this <sighs> while people, while, you know, my the guests are talking, but I was nodding my head a lot because it, it it's an inspiring thing. And I think you explain extremely well the kind of the reality of, of being a creative person, which by the way, everybody is a little bit creative, right? Um, of course, but, but you, you explain that so well. And then the same ambition I've always known you to have is it, it, it kind of closed it all up when you said, I got to fix that. And smartestry is going to do just that. So you, you opened it in, um, or you launched it in January, 2020, uh, a few things happened. And then now we're, you know, three and a half years away from that. So wh where does smartestry stand now? So, um, we have a podcast. <laughs> um, we have, you have a, a lot podcast? of great, I have a podcast. It's a thing to do these days. I'm told. Well, I, it, I, now don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure that me, you and Brent are the only people in the world who have podcasts. I'm pretty sure that's accurate. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I did some research <laughs> anyway. So you guys have a podcast. Where can we find the podcast? Yeah. Um, it's called the smartest. It's on all your your platforms, your okay. podcast listening platforms. All right. We'll link that in the show notes for sure. Thank you. So um, we've been in, in heavy content development, um, and that is right in my wheelhouse in terms of producing and directing and all of that. Um, and it has also been a real challenge because it's an entrepreneurial venture, um, it's not a nonprofit. So, um, I'm just trying to figure out how to be a business owner, um, how to survive a pandemic, um, how to put something out that people want to spend money on and, and that would be of value to them. And, uh, I really dealt with something that you and I talked about previously, which is burnout mm -hmm. and which is about trying to trying to do all the things at all, all at once. And I still am working in the financial services sector. Um, and I've got this other, you know, side hustle if you want, but it's very important to me. So it's more than a side hustle. Um, and I burnt out really hard last year. Um, I needed to take some time away to um, re-energize, rethink about how to how to make it easier for myself mm -hmm. um and what i wanted to how i wanted the business to show up for people um so i'm kind of at the point of a relaunch i think i've recalibrated i'm very excited about what we have now um to help people grow um and yeah so I, my plan is like don't don't ignore the burnout that's my strategy right now is to rest when you need to, but that also frightens me. <laughs> so, um, wait, let me interrupt you for a second because, yeah, yeah, man, that resonates with me hardcore. Uh, especially, you know, working the nine to five job, you know, wanted to do your best and always feeling with that head trash, as you say, oh, I could do more, I could do more, and oh, no, 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 I can't take a break because I need to stay ahead. And it, it's very much similar to that idea of scarcity that you were talking about earlier. So yes. I think more people think that than care to admit. And that's one of the reasons we are all so fucking burnt out. It's right. And with the scarcity mindset, um, it relies very heavily on people burning out so that that's the only way that we make way for anybody else is when somebody says, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's why, just as a side little <laughs> uh, soapbox, so much of that fringe theater scene in Chicago is so young is because by the time artists who are making theater at that level reach parenthood or, you know, their forties, let's say they can't go on at that same pace. They have to earn a living somehow and they are burnt out. Mm. And so just an observation, but I think that system perpetuates itself continually. Yeah. I, that's a very, I, I agree with that very much. Uh, it's like, uh, made me think of the Paul Simon lyric where he said, uh, that's astute. We should get together and call ourselves an institute. It's a great fucking lyric, man. I was one time real fast. I was watching, I had, uh, I had an apartment, a couple apartments ago that had free cable with it. And, nice. um, I was watching something and there were commercials. Remember those? And, uh, it was like one of those like commercials that was selling, greatest hits or, or I know I think it was Paul Simon's new album and they go from America's greatest singer songwriter and I was like doing something and I turned around and I go what the fuck did you just say no How wrong dare you. no that's Take Dylan it back. Dylan it's Dylan okay okay so as we wrap up here Melissa is there anything else that you wanted to say in general um and you know we can put whatever you know, whether it be the Smartest Tree podcast, uh, the website, any other information that you'd like to share, we'll, we'll definitely put it in the show notes. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say, you know, before we went on our merry way? Well, first of all, I just want to thank you for doing the work that you're doing, because by creating a space where people can share what's been going on for them, it's really helping all of us move ourselves forward and help all of us grow and know that we're not alone. And that's so incredibly important. Um, so thank you. That's the first thing. Thank you. <laughs> um, and by the way, just by listening to your show, I've been able to reach out to some of your past guests that I know and say hi and, and connect with them. And it's been really lovely. So Keep that's a really, it. really wonderful thing to hear. Thank you for letting me know that. That, That's great. It really is. And I mean, what's left to say is that I, I will stand and die on the hill of the world needing our creativity um, and needing that like intrinsically unique point of view and perspective that each creative person has to share. We need innovation. We need community and dialogue. And, and so the way that I want to contribute and the way that I want to overcome um, my personal battles and challenges is to, um, you know, open dialogue and discourse myself and to create a space for learning and for transparency. And, um, you know, I really hope that Smartistry can help break down some of the taboo of talking about money. Um, we've all, or I don't want to say we all, but everybody I've talked to <laughs> has said we were raised to not talk about money. We are raised to believe that that is rude or too personal. Mm-hmm. And I want to bust that wall down because that's how we build power. That's how we um, get where we need to go is by just talking about this, just like what you're doing on this podcast. That's um, yeah, I agree with that. And that's, again, I'll use the word inspiring again. That's a, I just love your idea. I love what you're doing with it. Uh, I love that you've taken what, you had given so much of your life to and realized that really what you wanted to do was be of service to others and you were being of service to creative people. And uh, I just commend you times 1000 for that. And I thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I really, really, really appreciate it. Um, so thank you. Thank you. It's been so much fun and it's so good to see you. It's good to see you as well. And, um, because Brent, um, 
only hates me, I have to see Brent and and not you. Uh, and uh, so thank you, Melissa. And I'll end it the same way that I end every week or try to uh, with a reminder that there's always room for kindness and grace, no matter what you're doing, no matter the situation, and especially when dealing with yourself. Um, I forget that every day that I need to be kinder to myself and allow myself a little more grace. So there's always room for kindness and grace, and we'll see you next time on Sad Times. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.